to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka, here with Professor Akil Amar. Hi, Akil. Hey, Andy, and uh, we're here with someone else. Yep, we've been teasing it, and uh, today we have not only a special guest that we've been looking forward to, but actually we have one in person. So uh, please welcome uh, Neil Katyo. Hi, it's uh, really great to be here with both of you. You're two of my favorite people. So, um, uh, Akil, you've uh, taught me everything I know, basically. And so um, to be here with you in person is a special treat. And Andy, I've only known you for a few years, but um, every interaction has been delightful and terrific. And so uh, thanks for inviting me. And I take credit, I think, for introducing you two, just as at some point, maybe Neil can tell you the story of someone else that I once introduced him to, which which had some interesting consequences. So Neil is, uh, has a extensive and fascinating biography. Neil is the Paul Saunders professor at Georgetown University and the former acting solicitor general of the United States. Uh, He's already argued more Supreme Court cases than any other person of color in U.S. history, including uh, Thurgood Marshall, whose record he recently broke. He was named uh, the Litigator of the Year in 2017 by American Lawyer Magazine. While acting Solicitor General, he was responsible for representing the federal government of the United States in all appellate matters before the United States Supreme Court and courts of appeals throughout the nation. He's orally argued more than 40 cases before the Supreme Court of the United States, most of them in the last decade. Neil's interest in technology has resulted in him serving uh, on the board of Social Capital, a Silicon Valley firm focusing on technology and philanthropy. He's argued some of the most important cases of this century, including Hamden versus Rumsfeld in the Supreme Court, a case that challenged the policy of military trials at Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. And the Supreme Court sided with his client by a five to three vote. Former Solicitor General and Duke Law Professor Walter Dellinger said, quote, Hamden is simply the most important decision on presidential power and the rule of law ever, unquote. Earlier, Neil had served as National Security Advisor in the U.S. Justice Department, and he was Al Gore's co-counsel in the Supreme Court election dispute in 2000. He attended Dartmouth College and Yale Law School, clerked for Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer, as well as Judge Guido Calabresi on the U.S. Court of Appeals. His articles have appeared in virtually every major law review and newspaper in America, and he's co-authored with Professor Amar. Neil is the recipient of innumerable awards, including the very highest award given to a civilian by the U.S. Department of Justice, the Edmund Randolph Award, which he received in 2011 by the Attorney General. He was named one of the 40 most influential lawyers of the last decade by the National Law Journal. And in a somewhat different uh, vein, he was named one of GQ's Man of the Year in uh, 2017. He was also named one of the top 500 lawyers in the country by Law Dragon magazine for each of 12 consecutive years. He's appeared on every major American nightly news program and is most frequently seen on MSNBC where he appears essentially every day. Finally, he played himself arguing a Supreme Court case against the Solicitor General in an episode of the House of Cards on Netflix. So it's, it's really a great pleasure to have him here. So I think that your background 
uh, Neil, is, is unique among practitioners today in the sense that you've really had your fingers in all different aspects of legal practice as it pertains to the Supreme Court, constitutional law, etc. Um, why don't you tell me about some of the different realms that you find yourself uh, in? The yeah, I mean, it's a little bit by accident. And part of it is I just get interested in a new way of uh, a new kind of career choice, a new set of things to do. And I don't like giving up what I was doing. So I just add to it. And so, you know, I started out, I graduated from law school. Akil was my teacher. We'd even written a couple of articles together. And I really just wanted to be a legal academic. Um, and the reason was very simple. I was not a particularly great student coming into law school. I think I was probably the last kid admitted to Yale Law School in my class. Um, and I, I came here uh, to the law school by say when I say here, I'm literally at Yale Law School recording this in Akil's office right now. Um, it's like the first time I've seen anyone in 18 months. Um, but uh, I came here as a student um, and uh, uh, again, was not a particularly great student at the start, but it was Akil and several other professors that really mentored me, watched out for me, spent days and days teaching me how to write and think. Um, and I very much felt like I needed to give that back um, to other students. And so uh, when I graduated, I really just had that as my heart set to be a legal academic. I um, then went and uh, clerked first for uh, the dean of the law school, uh, Guido Calabresi, my dean, who President Clinton had put on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, uh, and then for Justice Breyer on the Supreme Court. And, you know, legal clerkships, for, for those of you in the audience who aren't sure what that is, that's like a one-year stint that you spend kind of apprentice to a judge. And it's actually an important and fairly prestigious thing to do. Like when I told my parents I wanted to do that, they're like, why would you want to be a clerk? You know? <laughs> and, uh, um, but um, it is a way to get a bird's eye view into the law to see how the sausage is made um, and the like. But you know, those two years of clerking didn't dissuade me from my goal at all, which was I was going to be a legal academic. And so I went on the teaching market while I was clerking um, and uh, took a job at Georgetown um, when I was 26 years old and uh, to teach. Um, at the same time, I took that job and then I had worked off and on for Al Gore, uh, who was vice president at the time. And, you know, I'd started working for him, you know, even when I was in college, uh, when he was just a presidential candidate. And his chief of staff called me up while I was clerking. And he said, uh, Neil, would you like to be special assistant to the deputy attorney general? I said, what is the deputy attorney general? This is, of course, before Rod Rosenstein and, you know, every, you know, people like that. Um, so, no, you know, nobody, I, I, most people didn't know what a deputy attorney general was, but the, the chief of staff said, look, it's the number two person at the Justice Department. It's the operational person. It's a really important role. And we're going to nominate someone great to this. And you could be his kind of right hand assistant. And I said, OK, who are you going to nominate? And they said, Eric Holder. I said, never heard of the guy. And, um, and at that point, Eric was the U.S. attorney for, for Washington, D.C., the chop top prosecutor for Washington, D.C. Um, but I thought to myself, um, you know, OK, that'd be interesting. I'd love to meet him. So I met him. Um, he hired me, no resume, nothing. This was a political appointment. That's all it was. 
And the downside of that, I mean, it was great that like there was no real interview or anything. I just was slotted in for the job. The downside of that was he had no idea that actually like, you know, I could do a couple things in the law. So I got there. And, after, who, and who was his boss? Uh, Janet Reno. Okay. She's the so, attorney general. She's the attorney general at the time. Okay. So for those unitary executive folks, the president is Bill Clinton. Exactly. And then uh, Janet Reno is uh, his attorney general after um, Zoe Baird had a problem in her uh, confirmation process. Correct. Janet Reno's, Reno's deputy is Eric and you're Eric's assistant. Right. So I go in as his special assistant. So, so maybe we can put some meat on these bones um, for, for people that are listening. You say it was a political appointment. What po- political credentials did you have at that point that would cause you to be a political Yeah, I was not actually a political person or anything. It was just that I had worked off and on for Gore as, you know, kind of a policy person, as an intern, as all sorts of things. I, I you know... I as liked, a chauffeur? As a chauffeur even, yes. You know, uh, I opened his mail at one point, you know, happy to do it, you know, anything to help the cause. So, um, it, you know, it was... By political, I don't mean in the sense of Democrat versus Republican as much as it was like a connection job. It was like, have you been demonstrated sufficient loyalty? And there's a several, you know, hundred or maybe thousand positions known as Schedule C positions in the executive branch, of which special assistant to the deputy attorney general is one. So I got there. Hang, hang on. Yeah, let me just jump in with a, you know, a, a, a story because... Um, our audience will remember, of course, that um, we've done a series on the Ivy League, and we did uh, we had um, a discussion of, of Dartmouth and the Dartmouth College case. So Neil does his undergrad work at Dartmouth, where his his oldest son Rem is actually um, a student now, and Rem actually was a research assistant for my most recent book. The way Neil was, uh, you know, an assistant um, on some of my my earlier projects. So um, if you go to Dartmouth. Um, that's connected to American presidential contests because that's actually the New Hampshire primary is really important at the beginning. New Hampshire is a purple state. It sometimes is really close at the end. So you're someone like Al Gore. You're a Tennessee senator. You're running for president. This would be 1992? Uh, 1988. No, 88. Okay, 88, right. Okay. And um, uh, you don't have very many New Hampshire contacts at, at all. Um, but who would be worth his weight in gold for you. Some Dartmouth undergrad who, who likes you, um, who um, is willing to sort of help you in, in various ways, drive you around or whatever. And that was Neil when you were how old? Uh, 18. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so, and so now flash forward. Um, so Gore doesn't, you know, win um, in 88, um, but is picked for the vice presidency four years later, okay? And now Neil is in law school, he's my student. Gore comes to town as vice president at one point. This is before his clerkship with Guido Calabresi, with Steve Brownlow. He's, he's just a twerpy student at, at Yale Law School, you know, and I love him. That's but, redundant. <laughs> so, um, uh, and, and the vice president of the United States comes to Connecticut, um, spends a day, um, and um, does he actually spend a lot of time with the person who will later be his vice presidential running mate when he runs for president, Joe Lieberman, the senator of Connecticut? Does he spend a lot of time with Joe Lieberman or with the, the, the governor um, uh, or, or the mayor? He calls Neil up and says, hey, you free for lunch? You know, because this 
kid at 18, I guess, made some... Yeah, maybe it's more of a personal connection yeah. to, to Gore. Yeah, I mean, I think... And, and I was astonished. Like, he says, oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, Professor, I, I can't really help you today on this project. Uh, I, I, I have something else to do. And I said, like, well, what else do you have to do? He said, uh, uh, meeting with the vice president, uh, uh, please, sir. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I do think, um, you know, particularly in Washington, you know, loyalty is in short supply. So I think, you know, and, uh, you know, there are opportunities like that for young kids if they can just show true loyalty and demonstrate an interest and a willingness to do whatever. Um, you know that that is a way to start to, to to build something. I had no connections. My family has zero political connections or anything like that. So, so then what is what is what do you mean by loyalty? Because loyalty is a word we heard a lot in the last administration, and people when they heard it, they felt that it was nefarious in some way. Well, sure. In the last administration, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about this more, in, you know, later in, in the episode, but, you know, loyalty is not an excuse for, like, breaking the law or um, disregarding fundamental precepts of morality, but it is a willingness to, you know, in politics, to me, it's, you know, willingness to go and help someone, um, you know, that you've signed up to help, and even if it's not glamorous, you know, I was at the top of my law school class at the end of my first year of law school. I went and interned for Al Gore, and what did I do for the first three weeks? I opened mail. That's what I did. Um, even though, you know, the, the Yale Law School at the time, top law school in the country, and I was doing well there. Um, but that's what I did. And, um, you know, I didn't ever complain once about it. Um, and, you know, in part it was just like I felt lucky to be around in the White House. I was, you know, 18-year-old son of an immigrant, immigrants. And um, and uh, so um, I think that's what they're looking for. I think that, you know, and so it's not some fealty to, you know, like, you know, to the king or something like that, the way that I think Trump perverted it. Um, but it is, you know, just a willingness. So uh, in any event, Bottom line is where, you know, I've graduated from law school, I've clerked on the Supreme Court, I show up at the Justice Department, and I have this job really because of loyalty, not because uh, of my abilities. They have no idea what my abilities were. And ultimately, for the first several months, I had nothing to do um, except some political tasks, which I actually wasn't particularly good at. I wasn't, uh, you know, a particularly political person. Um, and it was frustrating. I tried my best, um, but uh, I'd taken a leave from Georgetown basically to, to work um, at the Justice Department. And I really didn't have, frankly, very much to show for it. And so I mentioned that to Eric. Uh, and he said, just give me a few hours. I'll find something cool for you to do. And he sure did. Like, um, there was a very complicated issue with the Office of Legal Counsel, which is the kind of uh, office at the Justice Department that advises the president on intricate issues, including covert operations and things like that. And there was a very difficult national security issue in which the Office of Legal Counsel had, uh, was taking a certain position. And, the, and uh, Eric said, asked me, hey, take a look at it. Do you think this is right? And I totally thought it was wrong, like everything start to finish wrong. And I told him. And by that evening, I was in the Situation Room at the White House briefing the Deputies Committee, the number twos of all the different national security agencies, on my view of the law. I was, what, 26, 27 years old at the time, um, and it was incredible. And one of the things I realized is, particularly in national security work, the world is so insular in terms of who gets cleared. It's frankly a lot of people whose parents had those high security clearances and grandparents and the like. And there's a lot of groupthink 
in the room. And it really was a place I could actually stand out and be different right away and give them um, interesting advice um, that allowed them to, to do things. And so I fell in love with national security law at that moment. Um, and uh, my dream was to one day be the national security advisor to the president. I ultimately, Eric promoted me to be the national security advisor at the Justice Department, um, you know, probably when I was 28. Um, but, um, but that's really what I wanted to do. Um, I was like, I was going to teach and love teaching and then every so often hopefully get national security jobs in future administrations. Now, now when this is happening, where is Osama bin Laden in the world and in your world? Yeah, so very soon after I got the promotion to national security advisor, we had the embassy bombings uh, in Kenya and Tanzania and uh, horrific, horrific attacks. And Miss um, um, Reno at that point, you know, I started basic the way that it works at the Justice Department is uh, if you're in the deputy attorney general's office, you particularly if you're doing okay, you also get tasked by the attorney general. And so Miss Reno tasked me with some very tough legal questions in response to that and what we could do. Um, and I then at that point did a pretty systematic deep dive into Al-Qaeda and um, what it was, what bin Laden was doing, what the threats were, um, what the authorities, the suite of authorities was to attack, um, to use all sorts of um, mechanisms at our disposal, not just military, uh, to deal with it. Um, and I was very much known as a hawk on these issues, um, so much so that after the horrific attacks on, on September 11th, uh, you know, one of the commissioners uh, had read some of my work and said, you know, that uh, that uh, that I was prophetic in, in understanding the nature of the threat, um, and that meant a lot to me. At the same time, I remember, you know, in those days after 9/11, for months, just being racked by guilt, just thinking. Uh, you know, I wish that there was more that we had done. Um, and you guys uh, came close, didn't you? We came close. You know, ultimately, you, you know, in anything in which 3,000 Americans die, of course, every person should think about anything they could do. Um, but in any event, the, the you know, um, I did go back to Georgetown uh, after that and teaching and loving it and came and taught here for a while. Uh, Yale and uh, and Harvard and then and just thought I was going to be an academic um, but then those attacks on September 11th happened and I was bouncing around with like what should I do like I was doing these you know trying to help some first responders and stuff but I wasn't a particularly great uh, um, you know lawyer at the time or anything but still I wanted to do something and then on November 28th 2001 two and a half months after those attacks um, I found actually the thing, my, my kind of calling. Um, on that day, President Bush issued a military order uh, for trials at Guantanamo of suspected terrorists. And uh, I looked at it and I honestly thought it was a joke. I thought I was like on the Onion website when I read what was going on there because the president was saying he could set up this whole trial system from scratch, that he could pick the prosecutors, pick the defendants, pick the defense attorneys, pick the judges, pick the appeals judges, write all the rules for the trial, define the punishments, which he said include the death penalty, define the rights that defendants have, which he later said zero constitutional rights, 
Um, and he went so far as to say the federal courts had no business reviewing this, no writ of habeas corpus. Um, I thought that went way too far. And so um, I uh, first testified in Congress about it, um, you know, uh, in the Senate. Uh, and then excuse me, it was, uh, November 28th was the day of the testimony. November 13th was the presidential order. And um, and so I testified November 28th. And then, you know, I'm just like a like nobody academic at this point. But um, I do uh, reach out to Larry Tribe, who testifies the next week in December and says something similar uh, to me uh, in his testimony. And I said, you know, we should really write a law review article. And Larry says, yeah, absolutely. But we got to do it really fast because these Guantanamo trials are happening and we need to tell the world what the legal defects are, because the worst thing that would happen is you set up the system and then everything gets thrown out because after people are convicted because the whole thing is a made-up edifice and so we rush and I stay up basically for two weeks day and night we rush an article to the Yale Law Journal a 60 page article saying all the legal defects with these military trials at Guantanamo and you know we're thinking like we're academics this is gonna really change the world didn't change a thing. Nobody read it, as far as I can tell. Maybe my mom read it. I don't know. But um, um, but it didn't actually change um, anything. The Bush administration were continued down its path of these military commissions, but they also slow walked it. It actually took them 18 months to actually even appoint a prosecutor and defense attorney. And when they did appoint that defense attorney, um, I wanted to reach out to him. His name was Colonel William Gunn. Uh, uh, African-American top graduate of Harvard Law School, uh, Air Force, uh, TJAG, like, you know, someone who is going to be be someone um, really important um, in the Air Force. But then he took this job and uh, they the Pentagon made it impossible for me to contact him. They did not show phone number, email, address, nothing. Total blackout. Um, but I had a friend who was very high up at the Pentagon who gave me his contact information. And so I reached out to Colonel Gunn and I said, hey, my name is Neil Katyal and, you know, I know you're the chief defense counsel. I've written this law review article. I think there are all these problems and I just want you to be aware of it. And he said, Neil, stop there. Don't tell me another word because anything you say to me, I have to report to Secretary Rumsfeld. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, that's the deal. I'm the chief defense attorney, but I have to report. I don't have attorney-client privilege. I said, wait, you're the chief defense attorney without attorney-client privilege? And he says, yes, I don't have attorney-client privilege. So he stops me. He does ultimately find a workaround around this, a way to, for me to work with two junior attorneys, uh, JAG officers. And so we started working together to create a test case. And ultimately, to make a long story short, that became my first Supreme Court argument. Um, everyone thought we would lose the thing. Um, I lost it in the DC Circuit. Uh, there were six different issues in the case. I lost it, uh, all six issues, and I lost each one three different ways, except, well, I guess one I lost two and a half different ways. So there were 17 and a half different holdings against us in a opinion that was only 16 pages long and which was signed by a guy named John Roberts, um, who was then on the DC circuit. And that decision came out July 12th, 2005. Three days later on July 15th, 2005, President Bush nominates that guy, John Roberts, to be Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. And two weeks later, uh, two weeks after that, 
as the Chief Justice William Rehnquist passes away, nominates him to become the new Chief Justice. So I had the unenviable task of asking the Supreme Court through what's called a certiorari petition, which says, hear my case. I had the unenviable task of asking the Supreme Court to grant this case and overturn their new Chief Justice's most prominent opinion uh, in his couple of years on the DC Circuit. And who was your client? My client was uh, Salim Hamdan, who was alleged to be Osama bin Laden's driver. So also not a great, you know, client. You know, obviously when you're challenging Guantanamo, it's not like, you know, it's Andy and Akil at Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you're always picking from a certain range of clients. But, um, but this one, obviously there was a PR kind of hit on it and that was one of the reasons for the conventional wisdom which was that we would lose this thing and lose it big so so just to, to back up here you've gone from being a, a hawk trying to basically neutralize bin laden uh, authorize uh, give legal authorization to the president of the united states to use all sorts of tools to neutralize to use a euphemism um, osama bin laden you've gone from that to being the lawyer of last resort for uh, his, a person alleged to be his chauffeur. That's correct. And I actually always saw those two things as fundamentally consistent with one another and indeed mutually reinforcing. So tell that us is, about that. Yeah, so that is, you know, I, I deeply think what sets this country apart and what makes us an exceptional country to use the loaded term, is our commitment to the rule of law. And that's why, um, that's what makes us Americans and unites us against these illiberal forces around the world. And the idea that a president could just blow off the law entirely and create a legal black hole at Guantanamo, I just think is fundamentally inconsistent with what this whole struggle is about. And so, um, yes, I absolutely believe that a president has very strong tools available militarily, diplomatically, economically to go after a threat like al-Qaeda. But that doesn't mean that you get to create legal black holes. And so you, I, you distinguished between just holding someone even indefinitely and criminally punishing them. Is, is that right? Or have correct. I misunderstood? No, that's correct. That is, you know, when you're meeting out justice, you do so according to a certain set of rules and norms. And when you're detaining someone, you detain them pursuant to the laws of war. And I do think that the that presidents and, you know, uh, and the American government has a greater authority, greater suite of authorities to detain someone. It may not be political. It may not be uh, uh, the wise, prudent thing to do, as it, you know, I think here is where in year 20 at Guantanamo, it's getting increasingly absurd. Um, but I do think a, that the government has broader powers to detain than to, you know, put to death in a, ju a judicial system uh, or a fake judicial system, something. So this is uh, so in a sense, you're talking about patriotism here, right? In other words, there are people who are pure critics of the United States um, in any scenario they're critical of the United States but here we are here we are where you have demonstrated an attachment to to the United States and you know, patriotism is as our friend Stephen Smith has said you know is is based in in a form of love um, you know you're, you might feel patriotic towards your parents 
because they've given you things that perhaps you never earned. You just they just gave them to you, and they've imparted certain values to you that you accept. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't be critical of them. And you know, in, in this case, you know, there's an additional duty, a, a citizen's duty, to be uh, to to be critical of the nation because who will be if not its citizens? You know who. Um, but again, it's it's based in a certain affection for the for the nation, not a pure you know hatred of America or anything like that. Yeah, Andy, you put it so well um, and much better than I can. It was exactly that, and you know, and I do have a story about that, which I think um, illustrates that um, very well. So, um, my client Salim Hamdan was uh, detained at Guantanamo for ten months before I was allowed to see him, and he was in solitary isolation. They didn't allow anyone to see him at all. He never saw a human face. Our CIA manuals say you do that to someone for three days, it causes you know, a risk of permanent psychosis. So I've been trying to see him and um, the, they wouldn't let me. So first the Pentagon said I didn't have the security clearances to, to meet someone alleged to be an Al-Qaeda. I said, look me up, my security clearances are active still from my last job in government and they are um, you know, at the very highest levels, uh, covert operations, the whole thing. So they look me up and they're like, okay, yeah, you, you do have the need, you do have the requisite clearance level, but you don't have need to know. Um, because in the clearance world, you need to have both things. You need to have sufficiently passed those background checks, but you also need to actually have a particular reason for some information. And, and that's said, why you can like limit someone's computer access, for example. You exactly. Know, they can't just go looking for whatever they want if there's no no purpose. And as a doctor, I sometimes face this if I want to prescribe my wife's medication. I'm an ophthalmologist. The, the pharmacist will say this is outside the scope of your practice. You know, so. Exactly. So they compartment for this reason. And I said, what do you mean I don't have a need to know? And they said, well, you're a law professor. You're making these abstract academic arguments. Um, you don't need to actually meet your client to make them. You've already made them in the law review article and so on. And I, you know, I'm pretty deferential to the government, so I was like, oh, maybe that's right. And then I thought, no, wait a minute, I'm not an academic here. I'm acting as a lawyer. Really, for the first time in my life running a case, um, I'd been on some other legal teams before, but I'm truly a lawyer here. And I said, this is not my case. This is his case. Of course, the, the Hamdan's case. Of course... I should be able to meet him. So I asked for that in writing that they said I had no need to know. And then they let me go to Guantanamo because they knew I would give it to the New York Times. And um, uh, and so they they let me go. They made it really hard for me to go to Guantanamo. It was like a 30 hour trip, which is normally like a three hour flight, but they made it 30 hours. Um, and I get there late at night, um, totally harrowed and exhausted. And I meet my client, Mr. Hamdan, for the first time. And he says to me, I want everyone else out of the room except the translator. I had a couple of law students with me and some others that I had brought. And, um, and he says, I want to talk to you alone. So I think he's going to yell at me. Everyone leaves. And he asks me, he says, look, I just have one question for you. Why are you doing this? Why are you representing me? I heard your last client was Al Gore because I worked on the Al Gore 2000 uh, Supreme Court case. Bush v. Gore. Bush versus Gore. And, um, and so I remember I paused for like 45 seconds taken aback by the question. And I remember, I remember this so vividly in my head thinking, God, Neil, you, are, you should just be an academic because you can't answer questions. And lawyers, 
you're supposed to answer questions. And here your client asks you a simple question and you don't have an answer to it. And, um, and then like another five seconds go by in my head and I think, well, maybe it's okay. When you ask Justice Ginsburg a question, she often waits as long as a minute before answering. So maybe I'm okay. And then like another five seconds go by and I think, well, that doesn't matter. He doesn't know who the hell Justice Ginsburg <laughs> is. So, so, but then I told him this, Andy, and it gets to your point. I said, look, you know, my parents came to America from another country and they came not because of the quality of its soil or its sports teams. They came here for a very simple reason, which is they could land on its shores and be treated fairly. Maybe not perfectly, but fairly and better than any other country on earth. And I told him, Mr. Hamdan, I said that had always been my experience in the country. I mean, giving me the greatest opportunities to go to the greatest college and law school and to serve in the government at a really high level without having parental connections and everything else. I said, you know, this, you know, that always, my parents' vision of America had always been the one that I had experienced until this moment. Because in that President Bush, November 13th, 2001 order, President Bush did something no president had ever done, no American government had never done, which is to say, if you are an American citizen, you get the Cadillac version of justice, the American civilian trial with all of its you know, protections and so on. But if you're one of the 12 million green card holders, like my parents at the time, or if you're one of the 5 billion people around the earth, there aren't a US citizen, you get the beat up Chevy version of justice. You get this Guantanamo trial. And we've just never done that before. And I didn't say this to him, but I know that this is a podcast about the Constitution, so I'll share it with you. And Akil, you know this better than anyone. The language of the 14th Amendment uses the words equal protection of all persons. Persons. It doesn't say citizens, unlike other parts of the 14th Amendment, which do refer to citizens, like the Privileges and Immunities Clause. You ask, well, why does it say that? Nikhil, you've taught me this. Uh, it says that because Representative Bingham, who wrote that draft, wanted to overrule the worst line in the worst Supreme Court case in American history, the line in Dred Scott, that said only citizens have constitutional rights. So the persons is used on purpose. And yet you now have a president who said, you know, we're going to make that fundamental distinction on the basis of citizenship. And some persons get one version of justice and others get another. That's just a fundamental betrayal of what America's promise is about. And that's why I took the case. I knew that the ACLU and other great organizations wanted to litigate this and would. But I felt like the only way to win in a court that, you know, was quite conservative with seven of the nine appointees uh, nominated by Republican presidents. The only way to win was to have national security chops. And, you know, that was the one thing I had. And so we litigated the case not as some ideological outfit or anything like that. As a law professor with two JAG attorneys at his side um, and a whole bunch of amici, including a ton of retired flag officers um, and the like, who said, you know, you're defending America when you defend this guy who's accused of being bin Laden's driver. There's a sort of an ad hominem quality to this, right? That the, the, the likelihood of winning the case is related to the character of the lawyer. Um, uh, you know, is that, uh, you know, is there something 
well, a little bit off about that? Well, I wouldn't want to say it's necessarily the character of the lawyer as much as it's the disposition of the lawyer. So it's, uh, you know, I do think sometimes optics matter. I don't want to say that they never do. And in fact, when the Supreme Court agreed to hear the case, my first call was to Ken Starr to ask him to argue it because I did think that, you know, optics do matter a little bit and better to have someone who is truly a dyed-in-the-wool conservative um, argue it and ultimately couldn't do so for various, um, you know, reasons relating to his law firm. Um, you know, this was a thing where very few people wanted to, you know, go out and stick their neck out and defend Bin Laden's driver. And, so and, which, and law is ad hominem. We say, we cite Marbury versus Madison and then... Um, uh, so um, 5 U.S. 1 Cranch 167, maybe it was 137, 1803, parenthesis, Marshall C.J. It matters that it's a Marshall opinion or a Joseph Story opinion. And lawyers have reputations, and they do matter. And this came up um, when I testified uh, before the Biden Judicial Commission. Um, one of the other witnesses was complaining about the fact that some Supreme Court litigators actually are repeat players and they have more credibility with um, the justices. I don't know if you saw this. This is Craig Becker's testimony, Anil, um, and he was proposing that actually at the cert grant stage it should be blind and the justices shouldn't know actually which lawyer was asking the Supreme Court to take a case. Um, so uh, this is not going to happen. Um, did you know? Did you know that, Neil? No, um, okay, that, that was that's, but, uh, <clears throat> so so. But 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 lawyers have you know, reputations. A, a, a judge um, um, knows who the lawyer is, and and yes, in in some close case you you for example you you might be skeptical of a certain lawyer who has a reputation for being a little bit um, uh, sketchy in her or his relationship to the truth and then there are other people and you know you can count on that site being correct that when they say it says X at a certain page Y that when you look it up darn it it says X at page Y yeah, hundred percent. Like I mean, you know, the, you know, the, those of us who are multiple repeat players at the Supreme Court, I think we feel an absolute obligation to get it more than right. I mean, we have to be as pure as possible um, because our reputation before the court is everything, and um, and we will never, you know, those of us who do this won't overclaim. Will be very straight. Um, your friend to kill Peter Keisler is a wonderful example of this. Who will often start out arguments by saying, "My opponent's best argument is X," and it actually is X. It's not like some straw man version. It's straw person version of X. It actually is the best argument on the other side, and then he answers it. Um, and so, uh, you know, maybe I've got some skin in the game here, but this idea that you know by being a repeat player. You know, that I actually think, you know, for game theoretic reasons, that's exactly what the court wants, which is people who they know are going to come back to them again um, and have every incentive to be absolutely straight with the court. And, you know, one of the things that's happened in my bar, Supreme Court bar, is, um, you know, you do have these folks who uh, do keep the case because they had it, you know, from trial on and they just want to say they've argued at the Supreme Court. And, you know, every so often it goes okay, um, and, uh, but more often than not, it doesn't because 
you know, it is a different skill, um, and we can talk more about what that skill is. Um, but but at, at this point, you didn't have that. This was right. your first argument Correct. before the court. But what you did have is credibility as a scholar with Larry Tribe and others, as a former Supreme Court clerk, you know, arguing before that very court, um, and as a, government, a former government official with a lot of credibility um, uh, on issues of national security and a reputation um, for not being a softy. Yeah, all that's true, um, but that only gets you so far. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, but this all this actually does. You, you are sort of backing what I said that 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 the character of the lawyer or the qualities of the lawyer are relevant to the I, case, or and that you know, as a citizen, I'm not so sure that you know that I, I want it to be that way. I mean, I understand that if I were on the court, it would make my job easier. I could rely on, you know, on the lawyer to get the certs right. And if I don't have to necessarily double check everything he says and, or she says and so forth. But I don't know if that really ultimately serves justice. Well, um, I think we might be talking past each other a little bit. So I, I'm making two points. Number one, there's a certain set of lawyers who are just going to be incentivized mm -hmm. to be highly accurate. Those tend to be people who are repeat players. Mm -hmm. Not always. Not, you know, lots of people will, you know, you guys have never argued before the court, but if you did, I have every reason to believe, even though it'd be your first argument, it'd be you played absolutely straight. So that's number one. Number two is not the perceived character of the lawyer or something like that. I don't think that's what makes the difference. I think what makes the difference is their disposition. So someone who served in national security roles, as I have, I think is going to appreciate litigating a case like this differently than someone who's been at the ACLU her whole life. Mm -hmm. um, not to say that that wouldn't be, she could be a phenomenal advocate, but when you're trying to deal with a court that's already conservative, that's scared to make national broad national security pronouncements for fear of possibly undermining our ability to fight wars and the like, um, it's very helpful to have someone who sat in that chair in the executive branch advising on those really hard calls. Um, and it, it affects how you litigate. So you could emphasize the case as a matter of fundamental first right principles and rights, or you could emphasize it as a matter of structural constitutional law and who should make the call, Congress or the president. I chose the latter. I didn't, the left really wanted me to say Guantanamo's fundamentally unconstitutional. There's no way the government can do it. Um, I didn't do that. You know, certainly the ACLU and others filed briefs like that to the Supreme Court, but our position was no, Guantanamo might be. You know, you don't have to decide, Supreme Court, that fundamental question is Guantanamo, you know, illegal, unconstitutional, because here there's a simple way to resolve it. Congress hasn't authorized what's happening at Guantanamo. So two fundamentally different ways of litigating the case. Um, and that's an illustration of what I'm talking about. It's more substantive than it is like, oh, they think this person has a good character. Now, you said that uh, no president had ever done this before. Um, did you nevertheless rely on precedent in, uh, to, you know, heavily in your arguments? Oh, absolutely. I mean, in, particularly in national security cases, you're always looking for both sides are trying to mine the historical record. So FDR had set up 
some military commissions when eight Nazi saboteurs were captured. It's a phenomenally interesting story. In that case, it was rushed to the Supreme Court um, in a case called Ex Parte Kirin. But the way that that unfolded was so different, um, with far more rights given then, um, and a kind of a matching to the court martial system, whereas this was kind of an end run around the court martial system. So there were a lot of differences. But even in Ex Parte Kirin, President did not, FDR did not say, oh, if you're a U.S. citizen, you don't have to go to the military commission. He had one set of one set of rules for all the Nazi saboteurs, even though one of them, Haupt, was a U.S. citizen. So now you've you've argued before the uh, John Roberts as a appellate justice judge, and now you're moving to the Supreme Court, and you you pointed out why the odds are you know against you. You got creamed, you know, at the at the lower level. You're arguing for the same justice who I guess doesn't recuse himself. No, he did. He, he recused. Yeah, so that was ah. a big part of his confirmation hearing. So I argued it before an eight-member court. Um, and uh, of course, every one of those eight knew that their new chief mm -hmm. justice had, right. you know, had had these views. But nonetheless, um, you know, and I was totally scared out of my mind to argue the case. I mean, I, I really didn't sleep for months. Um, and um, uh, but I had basically a strategy where I um, uh, I took a legal pad out and I made a list of all the people in the country who scared me the most. And um, and I called each of them and I said, well, you moved me. Will you hear my case? And I came here to Yale and Akil and Harold Coe and others mooted me. And I went to Harvard and, you know, Larry Tribe and people like that mooted me. I went all over the place. And um, uh, when I got there to the court, um, I remember something that um, uh, that uh, a Harvard professor, David Shapiro, told me. He said, Neil, when you get there, of course, you're going to be really nervous, but a half minute in, it's going to be you're going to realize you know more about this case than anyone else and your nerves will fall away mm -hmm. so i was thinking of that to myself i know more about this case than anyone else it's true i basically spent years doing nothing but this case um but half a minute in my nerves aren't falling away <laughs> <laughs> so um but the argument did go really well um every i'd sat there and thought of every possible uh way to to basically trap my opponent, who was Paul Clement, President Bush's Solicitor General, was his 35th argument. For, you know, and we've become great friends since, but fortunately he did fall into those traps. Um, and so the argument went well, and, um, and ultimately we won the case. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and the Guantanamo tribunals fell, and the Geneva Conventions were deemed to apply to everyone in the War on Terror, which meant meant the end of ghost prisons worldwide, the end of waterboarding worldwide, the end of enhanced interrogation techniques. A lot of stuff changed. And I was at that point 36 years old. And it was then that I realized, wow, the power of being a lawyer um, to do things. Um, and um, at that point, I got hooked on litigation. Now. Of course, the cases are not only oral argument, right? There's also the, you know, the papers, the amicus briefs, the justices' own conferences with each other and their clerks and, and so forth. Uh, is it your sense that this case turned on the oral argument? 
one never knows um as i think i i think justice Breyer put it in a different context he said it's like asking the duck and duck a la orange what what matters um so uh you know i know he has this joke about um chicken a la king or chicken a la king oh, yes. one or the other i <laughs> kill so, uh, so. also quick for justice Breyer. so um uh but um uh you know i my, I don't want to speak about any one particular case, but having now seen about 400 oral arguments at the Supreme Court, what I would say is I think you can lose a case very easily at oral argument. Um, and you can lose a case by, as we were talking about, blowing your credibility, making a statement that you know just undermines and causes the justices to question everything. And I've certainly seen that, and it's a painful thing to watch. Um, but you can also do so by making a concession that unravels the logic of your position. Um, and the justices are highly skilled at trying to get you to make that concession. Um, and, you know, Justice Stevens was the best at this. Justice Stevens would, he was so polite on the bench, he would just ask you like one or two questions. He'd be like, and he'd so, like, counsel, may I please ask you a question? And he'd say something in, in his bow tie and his smile, and it would sound so reasonable. And you'd say, of course, Justice, the answer is yes. And then he'd say another question like that. And he said, of course, Justice, the answer is yes. And then he'd twist the knife in and say, well, if you said yes to those two, why is that different than this case for the following reason? Just he was thinking four steps ahead at every oral argument and um, just remarkable ability to do that. Um, so I've definitely seen people blow it uh, at argument. And then every so often, yes, I think that someone gives a great argument that enforce it, that that gets the justices to look at a case um, in a different way. It certainly happens. I mean, I think that there's, you know, many many of us think about writing books, you know, and things like that, and you have an opportunity to express yourself. It seems to me that oral argument, you've prepared, you've you've taken, you've internalized this case in every respect, and now you get to express it. So it seems to me that that in and of itself. Um, can be per possibly personally satisfying to a lawyer. Well, it's personally satisfying. It's also personally terrifying. So, I mean, that's the other thing. Like when you're writing a brief, you know, you don't have to worry that you're going to be embarrassed on, you know, the national stage. Um, and I remember before my first argument, I was terrified about this, um, particularly Justice Scalia at the time, you know, was, who's a very, was a very hard questioner. And obviously I'm representing bin Laden's driver. So I was very scared. And I remember talking to my colleague, Richard Lazarus, uh, who's now at Harvard, but at the time was at Georgetown and who'd served in the Solicitor General's office. And I said, you know, how should I think about that? And he said something which I think about every argument. He said, Neil, you have to learn to revel in the questioning. You have to learn to understand this is your chance to talk to them and they have to listen to you like and they're telling you now what they think. You've been sitting there writing these briefs for a long time, but you're writing them against a blank slate. You don't know what they think. Now they're going to tell you what they think. So every question is an opportunity to change their mind. Now, that's 2006. Correct. OK, and Bush was president. He won the case. Um, now, a couple of years later, there's a presidential election, um, and this guy Obama wins, right? Correct. Okay, so the, I'm from, from Chicago, you're a, a Chicago person, then what happens to you? So actually, it's related to this Guantanamo case that I'm talking about, because I did an interview with Nina Totenberg on NPR, 
soon after the the win. I think it was around July fifteenth, two thousand six. And, and Nina is going to be uh, one of our guests. She's agreed to do it. So. Well, that's going to be a much better episode than this one. <laughs> um, so, so um, then Senator Obama heard my interview and. Um, and he calls me up. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I didn't. I, did, yeah. I didn't know this. Part yeah. Of the story. So, so okay. he calls me up and says, "Neil, I'd like you to come in and talk to me about Guantanamo." And I said, "Of course, Senator. I'm happy to." So I went in there, and um, he sets aside a half hour, fifteen minutes that I'm supposed to meet with him, and fifteen minutes I'm supposed to meet with his staff and him. And um, we talk for fifteen minutes, and he says, "I want to talk more." So we talk actually for another hour. And then he brings his staff in, and we kind of have a debate about what to do about Guantanamo for another hour. The whole thing is three hours long. Mm -hmm. It was remarkable. And, you know, he taught, we forget this, but he taught constitutional law. This was not like someone who was, you know, just, you know, you, you know a political senator or something like that. This is someone who understood the law. Um, and understood the values behind the law. And had been so, Larry Tribe's research assistant um, and, and present Harvard Law Review, but since you mentioned Larry Tribe before. Yeah. So, so um, at the end of the three hours, he says to me, Neil, on the one side of this room, everyone is saying, don't listen to Neil. On the other side, she, this one person, a staffie named Rucci, is saying, listen to Neil. What do you think I'm going to do? And I remember saying, I don't know what you're going to do, Senator, but I hope you do the right thing. And that's how I left the meeting. He does the right thing, even though he knows he's going to run for president. Um, but he votes against trying to recreate a kind of new fake system at Guantanamo. And uh, he called me to tell me that. And, um, and he told me he was running. And so uh, at that point, I and some others, including Larry Tribe, I think, and there were some other people, a few, like three or four other people on it, became a kind of lawyer's committee for him to just help him on hard legal problems uh, during the campaign, not campaign finance or anything like that, but policy issues. And um, then when he won, uh, he named Eric Holder to be Attorney General, and he and Eric had a so conversation. So he steps up one. He goes from the deputy to Janet Reno to uh, the number exactly. two position so he's to the, the number one position. He was nominated position. to be Attorney General. And so they had a brief meeting about me, and they decided to ask me what I wanted to do. They said, look, you can either come be Deputy White House Counsel, or you can be Deputy Solicitor General. Which would you like? And at that point, I really had the litigation bug. And so I decided to go be deputy solicitor general, the number two oral advocate um, and the number two litig like okay. so, uh, litigating so, officer so not for the U.S. government. Holder's deputy, but a deputy to the solicitor general. Correct. Okay. Which is the solicitor general is, um, you know, sometimes called the 10th justice. Um, certainly, I don't think the other nine think of uh, her <laughs> him that way. Um, but it is the top litigating position at the Department of Justice and for the federal government. And you defend not just the executive branch's actions, but also actions of Congress. And there's a lot of independence that the solicitor general has from both the attorney general and the White House. I never thought of myself as working for Eric Holder or even for Barack Obama. I thought of myself as working for the Solicitor General or when I was holding the position of acting Solicitor General, the top uh, position, I thought of myself as just you know having no higher duty than to justice and no no duty to the Attorney General or the President. Per se. So who was your client then? 
So that's a, the, one of the hardest questions to ask. And I found my client, to, I always thought my client was the American people. And if the president wanted to overrule me on something, of course it was his prerogative. We do have, as Akil, you would say, a unitary executive system. Nobody elected me to be president. But that the way the, the system works best when the Solicitor General adheres to the norms of the office, which don't change from one administration to the next, and then if you want to have the very rare circumstance in which a president wants to get involved into a case, that's absolutely fine, done openly, in open views for everyone to see, and that's how I ran the office. Now, who was, um, so you were deputy to the Solicitor General. So who's the Solicitor General? Eric Holder at present is Obama. Correct. And, and the Attorney General is Eric Holder. Now who's the Solicitor General? Elena Kagan. Ah. Okay. Did you know her? Uh, I knew her a little bit, um, but not well. Um, I knew her be when I taught at Harvard, um, and I knew her a little bit from the Clinton administration days, even though she was domestic policy counsel. Um, you know, she was so well regarded at the time. She even did some national security work. So I knew her from some of that, but I didn't know her well, and I certainly don't think I was her first choice. So I took that position, um, and Elena hadn't been confirmed. Um, so um, the first, uh, you know, the, the, the first couple of months were incredibly difficult in which I had to review every Bush administration litigating position and decide whether we would flip it and change position in the new Obama administration. And as I said, I applied a standard that I wasn't working for President Obama. I was working for the American people and ultimately didn't change position in any single case. And that contrasts just to, you know, Andy, you're talking about Trump and personal loyalty. That contrasts with what the Trump Justice Department did, which was flip position in over 50 cases, far more than all past solicitors general combined. Um, they fundamentally betrayed what the office was about. Um, now, did, did the Biden administration, did they also flip some of the uh, uh, Trump administration's positions? Right, so the Biden administration has now flipped a few, but flipping them back to the historic position of the Justice Department. So if, to take one example, like one of the most important things you do as Solicitor General is defend federal legislation from constitutional attack, even if you don't like it. Like Bush's Solicitor General, Paul Clement, defended McCain-Feingold campaign finance reform, even though they clearly thought that it was, you know, at least bad policy, if not a violation of the First Amendment. But that's what you do as Solicitor General. Well, the Trump Justice Department went in on the Affordable Care Act and said because of a tiny flaw in the act, the entire act had to fall, all thousand, two thousand, whatever plus pages, um, which was frankly, you know, an absurd position to take, um, particularly for a solicitor general. And so, yes, the Biden administration, while that case was pending at the Supreme Court, said that is not the way we understand the law to be. And lo and behold, the Supreme Court agreed with that position and didn't strike down the, the act. And so that's an example in which, yes, the Biden solicitor general or the acting Solicitor General Elizabeth Perloger has flipped some Trump administration positions, but generally to just flip them back to the longstanding historic position of the Justice Department. Now, I'm not going to put you on the spot on this, so you don't have to, to, to weigh in, but um, I agree with you that it is it was absurd to think that the whole act had to fall because of one arguable um, problem, which I, in fact, didn't even think was a, a problem. Um, but and the Supreme Court majority agreed with you and with me and with 
the Biden administration that um, uh, um, the the act didn't fall, although they they didn't the majority by our um, uh, uh, old boss uh, Justice Breyer didn't get into to all of these issues, but that was not a unanimous decision. There were dissents, and the dissenters actually did take a position that that. You know, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but you said, and you, it was very careful, you said, well, it's kind of an absurd position, especially for the SG to take, who's right. supposed to defend right. um, laws. And I would say, yeah, I think it actually was an absurd position also for a justice, and some of the justices right. who took that position, they're my friends, but wow, I thought that was a really outlandish position. Yeah, I think it is an outlandish, I agree with that, but I think it's an easy, it's, it's less outlandish when you already, if you're a justice and the Solicitor General of the United States is saying, this is our position on the law. That is the Solicitor General, you know, that's one of the things about it, Whatever position you take imparts credibility to the position, no matter what it is. And that's why that resource is so precious and you have to, you know, guard it and not abuse it. And I think this was an abuse. And so, yes, you can blame the justices for taking that view, of course, but I think that the Solicitor General made that possible. I think any normal Solicitor General who would have said, this, you know, the whole act doesn't fall, it would have been virtually impossible for those justices to take that position once the Solicitor General had taken the normal view of the law. So back to your now being Deputy Solicitor General with... Uh, if I could just follow up for a moment on, on this. So, so you've said now that the American people are your client when you're the Solicitor General. You said that the Solicitor General should defend a law that's bad. That in in their view, or the view, or even the president's view, is bad policy, when the, before the court. But you also said that the solicitor general should defend the law, even if they think it may violate the constitution. How is that consistent with the American people being your client? If you if you how can you defend an unconstitutional law? If the, American, if the American people are your client. So I think it's 100% consistent that the Solicitor General should take positions, even if she or he disagrees and doesn't think it's the ultimately right view of the law, your duty is still to defend federal legislation. And that is because we are in an adversarial system. So there's always someone on the other side who's saying, hey, this act is unconstitutional. And then your job as Solicitor General is to make the best argument you can on the other side and say, no, we think it's constitutional and tee it up for the court to decide. What you don't want to have happen and you know what I'm sure the American people don't want to have happen is for the lawyer for the federal government to throw in the towel and say, oh yeah, you're right, it's unconstitutional and basically sidestep the court case altogether. That's not what you want. That's not the adversarial system. Because in, in some sense, I've heard um, Akil argue a sort of departmental uh, approach to the to constitutional decision making, which is that, you know, under your scenario, the judiciary is the ultimate uh, assessor of what is constitutional and what isn't. And Akil has said that the president should decide what he thinks is constitutional, and he and he takes his actions as president with that in mind, whether it's a veto or a decision not to, uh, you know, instruct the Justice Department to prosecute someone or whatever. And Congress has their own role in deciding whether things are constitutional. So doesn't this fall under 
the the executive department's uh, role in deciding constitutionality? Well, a bit yes and no. So I would say there's a big difference between a litigator like the Solicitor General, for whom nobody voted, deciding that question, and the president deciding it. So if the president wants to come in and say, look, I think this law is unconstitutional, um, and I'm ordering you not to defend it, that's very different than having some litigator uh, decided. So that's, I think, point number one. Um, point two is, though, even for the president, I would advise the president that, in general, you know, we do want a system in which these things are decided by constitutional questions or decided uh, by courts and in adversarial testing, because not that, not that it's not the prerogative of the president, but I'd worry prudentially that presidents would be under pressure to not defend things and nullify statutes using the guise of constitutional law. And so, look, if a president could say, hey, I want to get rid of the Affordable Care Act by just saying, hey, I think it's unconstitutional, that's a really dangerous, I think, power for a president to wield. Does the president have that power ultimately? I think the answer is yes. But should a president, you know, hesitate with every fiber of her, his being before using it? I think the answer to that is also yes. So now you're a solicitor general, uh, deputy solicitor general, and um, do you find the role significantly different from when you were a litigator on the other side? Um, 100% different. So, um, you know, your job is really, truly to do justice. And so, like, the best example of it is a lawyer now, like, my client hires me, I take the position of the client, you know, it's if I've agreed to take the case. Um, there, in the Solicitor General's office, your job is, is truly to do justice, which means, for example, like you have a criminal case that your lawyers won in the circuit court, like this nation's second highest court, and, you know, they have defended this, you know, uh, criminal conviction from attack. And you look at it and you think, actually, that's not right. You know, we shouldn't have won that case. Then what you do is you go to the Supreme Court and you say, Supreme Court, hear this case and rule against us. Appoint someone on the other side to argue it so we have an adversarial testing. But we're going to come in and say the conviction is unconstitutional, should be invalidated. This is called the practice of confessing error. And every solicitor general, Republican or Democrat, has done so two or three times every year and asked the Supreme Court to and said, hey, you know that case we won? We shouldn't have won it. Rule against us. And that's why I think the Solicitor General should be willing to say, hey, we think this is an unconstitutional law. Um, appoint someone else adversarially to defend it, but, but we actually think it's an unconstitutional law. Yeah, there's a difference, though, I think, when you're dealing with constitutional stuff, again, because it does feel to me that... Um, what the Solicitor General says in terms of, you know, making a constitutional attack on a statute carries an outsized importance. Um, and, it, you know, it might also in the criminal context, but in the criminal context, I think we might be more willing to say we don't want to, you know, you're undoing only one conviction or something like that. You're not undoing a duly passed law of Congress. And so the stakes are different and the thumb on the scale, I think, is also perhaps different. Yeah, whenever people say that the stakes are different, if the, you know, if the stakes are different, but I'm not sure which way that cuts. 
because if it's an unconstitutional law, God damn it, it's an unconstitutional law. And if that's what you believe, is that your best legal judgment, that's what you should tell the court. And someone else, you just, you, 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 you admitted, they can, they can have an amicus, they can bring in someone else to defend it. If you think it's unconstitutional, precisely because the stakes are so high, oh, no, we shouldn't I have think, that unconstitutional law I don't law think you're answering my point, which is when the Solicitor General mm-hmm. says something, I think it has a particular weight with the court. Good, it should. But, you know, if you think, if you are a legal expert and your client is justice in the give, Constitution, the, you know, then stand yeah. up for the Constitution. Yeah, I don't think you want to Not for give, Congress. I don't think you want to give the Solicitor General that kind of authority, particularly as you see what the last Solicitor General Yeah, but, that, but the reason so. is because the last Solicitor General's views were bogus, okay? But, 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 but my point to you, Akil, is that the, the Solicitor General, because of the imprimatur, that she or he has can make the bogus more reasonable to the court. And so I would very much worry about departing from what has been a long-standing tradition of Democratic and Republican SGs. I mean, maybe you feel that there's some problem in which the Supreme Court is upholding a lot of legislation that you think is unconstitutional. I tend not to see that problem. If anything, I think the Supreme Court has been um, has been striking down far too many federal acts. Well, um, so I do think it's a problem when George W. Bush, when asked by um, uh, George Will whether he thinks the uh, campaign finance law then being discussed, um, uh, um, which will become McCain-Feingold, he's asked whether he thinks it's unconstitutional. I think he says, yeah. And, and um, uh, Will says, well, and do you think if you're president you should sign a bill that you think is unconstitutional? And, and Bush says, no, I shouldn't do that. And then the bill comes to him and he signs it with a signing statement saying, good thing that we have the Supreme Court around. You know, I'm signing this bill. I'm willing to enforce even though, you know, I think it's unconstitutional. Now, happily, from my point of view, the Supreme Court does invalidate the Snow Jeffers part of McCain-Feingold and Citizens United, which I think and Floyd Abrams was on my side on this, you know, but Akil, uh, was you unconstitutional. But disagreeing. That, yeah. I'm actually saying the president yeah. can do that and, yep. and absolutely should. He shouldn't be signing right. bills that he thinks are unconstitutional. Right. But that's very different than a solicitor general. Right. So, uh, so, now what, so now we've, we've come to a, a more refined um, uh, 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 intersection. I would say the solicitor general um, should be willing to go to the president say, Mr. President, Madam President, one day, my genuine legal view, my best legal judgment is this is unconstitutional. Um, I don't think, given the historic traditions of the, of the Solicitor General's office, that, that, you know, that should just be unilaterally my call. But if you agree with me on this, you know, I, I think you should seriously consider, um, uh, uh, and, and you can ask other lawyers. You, I'm not the only lawyer that you have in, in, in your administration. But should we really, shouldn't we be telling the Supreme Court that our genuinely considered view, and your reputation will be on the line, as is mine, um, is that we think this is unconstitutional. We think it's important that the, that the Supreme Court hear good arguments on each side so they can, they can ask someone else to defend the law, as is the case when we confess error. Um, Akil, I 100% think that that happened at least once. Oh, good. Wow. That's interesting.
Too bad. Too, too, too bad. You know. I will, uh, I will okay. not say more. Okay. <laughs> so um, to a T, though, everything you just said. <laughs> so, what were some of the notable cases that you know stick in your mind from one of the time that, that you were solicited? I think the one that the, I'll, I'll talk about. I'll, I'll talk about two. Um, one is you know my second argument in the office was to defend the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Um, and I remember calling Akil because I was nervous as hell. This was my fourth Supreme Court argument in my life. And, um, um, and Akil said, yeah, you know, this is an act with the blood of patriots on it, um, referring to the Pettus Bridge. And um, uh, Not I to put any pressure on you. Right, exactly. <laughs> Good um, job. I, I took that as seriously as, you know, outside of Guantanamo, the, the most, you know, the, the most important professional task I'd ever had. And um, uh, I spent day and night for weeks and weeks preparing for it. Um, and I remember thinking I really wanted to win Justice Thomas's vote. I thought he was in play. And I got up to, to, to start and um, the chief just went after me super hard. And I'm looking at Justice Thomas for most of the argument because I'm trying to get him to, to, to side with us. And um, I think generally, you know, the press reactions that night were that we the Voting Rights Act was going down. Um, but lo and behold, an eight to one decision to uphold the constitutionality of the Voting Rights Act, the one dissenter being <laughs> Clarence Thomas. <laughs> that was the Namundo case. Exactly. Northwest Austin versus Holder. Um, so that was one. The other, you know, and I know this is a constitutional podcast, but, I, you know, there's so much interesting law that happens in other spheres. And, the, you know, maybe the case I'm proudest of of all is a case that wasn't even in the Supreme Court at the time. It got to the Supreme Court by the Federal Circuit, and it was called Myriad Genetics, and it was about the patentability of the human genome. And... Um, this case involved the genes uh, patents on BRCA one and two, which are genes in your breast body cancer. that if you have if you have them, unfortunately, it's a very high risk of breast cancer in an aggressive form. And um, you know, I knew a little bit about this because my wife had to take the test because of some family genetic history. Unfortunately, she's fine. But I remember she paid I think about six thousand dollars for the test, which is a simple blood test. It's just they take the blood and ask yourself. And ask, you know, does the gene sequence BRCA1 and 2 appear in the blood? So it's like a 50 cent test or something like that. But they charge $6,000 because of the patent royalties. The question in the case was broader than just these two genes, but can you patent the human genome? Can you patent aspects of one's DNA, this literal string sequence? And the day that Elena Kagan was nominated to the Supreme Court, I think it was May 7th, uh, 2010, I started getting calls from cabinet, uh, from cabinet secretaries. What's your view on the mirrored genetics case? I didn't even know what it was, um, and uh, and so I had to start reading. And ultimately, I mean, it was the most amazing thing. I had Larry Summers tutoring me on the economics of innovation. I went to the NIH every Monday night for many months to learn uh, genetics, um, and ultimately made the decision to seek the invalidation of those patents on the human genome. There were about 20,000 that had been issued since the Reagan administration. A huge part of the biotech industry um, had um, sprung up around these patents and I sought their invalidation, uh, leading a lot of people to say this was crazy, uh, that uh, we would lose unanimously. 
Well, we ultimately won the case in the Supreme Court 9-0 to zero in an opinion by Justice Thomas. And now, as a result, the era of genomics has, un has, has unfolded, and all because of this decision, because it's meant that you can't have patents on naturally occurring DNA in people's bodies. Obviously, if you change them in some way, you can. Um, but the result is personalized genetic medicine is becoming a reality. Um, uh, I, we're beginning to wind down this session, right? Yes, although I, I wanted to just comment on the uh, this case. Um, you know, as, as a physician and a surgeon, one of the issues that I followed was the a question of method patents. So, you know, medical knowledge through the centuries, uh, how do you do this surgery, has been passed on freely. Um, and this actually was, there was a case regarding actually cataract surgery. Mm -hmm. um, a particular, and I was an eye surgeon. Um, and uh, so a particular way of doing mm -hmm. eye surgery, mm -hmm. which, you know, th this it didn't help this guy that his particular innovation was so minor mm -hmm. uh, that it really was not a fundamental change in the way that eye surgery was being done. But even if it had been, uh, this w would have been a real problem, I think, in stifling innovation. And uh, not to mention that the whole tradition of of medical knowledge and medical teaching and the Hippocratic Oath and so forth, so forth. So it's not exactly the same thing, but it was, but it was somewhat related. Yeah, no, 100%. I agree with you that um, that there are method patents that are strangling innovation in our economy, um, and uh, it's a real problem. And unfortunately, the PTO for many years, the Patent and Trademark Office, did let a lot of this stuff go. And just like you know, like the old saying about a grand jury, they'll indict a ham sandwich. For the PTO, they granted patents to all sorts of stuff that you know I think was really problematic and started. Uh, um, to undermine innovation, and so uh, you know, I'm glad that to see some equilibrium being restored. But can you patent a ham sandwich? <laughs> so we're coming close to the end of um, this first segment. Um, the next one, we're going to talk to you about the current court and and the justices. Um, but but you occupy several distinct roles, Neil. I think in the legal ecosystem, and I was hoping you could comment on their interrelationship. So we've seen Neil, the, uh, the academic, and Neil, the litigator, uh, both for um, uh, clients like Hamdan and, and, and for the government in the Solicitor General's office, because when um, Elena goes on the court, you're, you're the acting Solicitor General of the United States. We haven't quite heard about Neil, the uh, journalist um, on MSNBC and the op-ed writer, um, but um, and and when that persona uh, begins to uh, uh, emerge, um, uh, but I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that stage of of your career, um, uh, which has also coincided with a, a more vigorous, very prominent Supreme Court appellate practice. Um, at your law firm, you've, you're basically in the position in, at, at your law firm, H Hogan, that um, John Roberts once had um, before he, he went onto the bench. So um, these different positions, Supreme Court litigator at a top firm, um, f former Solicitor General of the United States, academic, because you, you're still, you have your gig at, at, at Georgetown, um, 
sort of media figure uh, with your um, uh, appearances on MSNBC and your op-eds in the New York Times and elsewhere. How do these things fit together? Um, how do they pull apart? Are, you know, what are the tensions between them? Who else does these things? Um, well, all just, of them. I'm tired just listening to you. <laughs> so, um, you know, I mean, I, I think this is somewhat um, a, you know, I, I certainly, if you told me five years ago, these would be the things I'm doing, I, I wouldn't have necessarily thought that. Um, I think what's happened is that I love doing certain things and then I see a need to do something else and so I do the something else but I keep doing what I was doing too instead of jettisoning it like teaching is a great example I love teaching and I love teaching in particle because of all you taught me and as I said at the start of this I feel an obligation to give that back I never want to give that up no matter how hard my life is I just can't think of myself as not being a professor um, so so you got that same time like I really do love to litigate I love the privilege of standing up and defending people in court and you know sometimes it's an individual sometimes it's a company sometimes it's a government but it's an enormous honor to tell their story um, in court um, and you know a lot of times you have to do it what you advise them privately is very different than what you say publicly because of the adversarial system. And so, you know, there's a role for justice um, and for, um, you know, giving sober good advice that a litigator can do, even though it's not stuff that's ever in court. Um, and I take that, you know, very, very seriously. And then, as you're right, um, after Trump won, the next day, I said to myself I have to do everything I can to stop this aberrational unconstitutional monster um, and that first meant litigating um, and I started you know literally the next day my nonprofit at Georgetown the Institute for Constitutional Accountability and Protection to stand up for that and to bring cases like challenging President Trump's Muslim ban challenging the Charlottesville right um, and things like that but it did increasingly become that not just a court thing but a kind of media like go talk to people tell them what's going on tell them what these threats are um, it wasn't something that I felt naturally good at um, you know before my first you know MSNBC and CNN appearances I remember writing everything out like on paper and stuff and having them on a yellow pad and trying to tape it up in front of the camera and this and that all sorts of stuff um, and um, but in you know for a long time I was wind up doing MSNBC and CNN every night both networks and that just got crazy and unmanageable particularly given everything else so then I just decided to do one MSNBC um, and but again it's the idea that I feel I felt an obligation to share what little knowledge I had with uh, the American public about you know some of these issues um, and you know there are definitely some tensions involved in that like first of all just one of time you know like I've said you know I'll never spend more than a half hour a day on media stuff even you know when it's very hot and heavy 
um, you know, that's, you know, causes tension on the, the media side. On the other side, sometimes clients are like, oh, you're on TV all the time. And I'm like, no, actually, it's a, the tiniest percentage of what I do. But I agree that, you know, I understand from a visibility perspective, that's, you know, sometimes what people see. It's it's kind of like everyone thinks the Solicitor General is arguing the Supreme Court all the time. No, you know, even as Solicitor General, you may argue five or six cases a year. Each one's an hour long. So that's like six hours of your life. But they think you're like there all the time. So it's the same, you know, it's a similar thing. Um, you know, I think that the way I try and manage it all is just to be straight with everyone and say, here's what I'm doing, here's why I'm doing it. Um, and uh, it's generally worked out um, pretty well. Do they enhance each other, these different roles? Um, I'm not sure they necessarily enhance each other. I mean, you know, there is a way in which, like, your students are obviously pretty interested when you're doing, you know, big cases that they're reading about in the newspaper. So that's um, good. It's certainly given me an appreciation for constitutional law um, in the classroom. It's just different, you know, to have litigated some of the cases you're teaching um, and um, to understand, you know, why certain opinions read the way they do because you happen to litigate them. Um, so, uh, you know, and also, you know, every so often, the academic side can give you a new insight into how to litigate something at the Supreme Court, you know, and just to, to maybe end with this example, you know, I was charged with defending the Affordable Care Act in the Supreme Court, uh, and President Obama put me in charge of that. Um, and uh, I remember, you know, reading a lot, and, um, and I remember a conversation Akhil had with me at one point in which he said, you know, there are two ways that you're defending this. One is the Commerce Clause. The other is the taxation power. You might want to spend some more time thinking about the taxation power because it's a pretty good argument. And we did. And, you know, we put some stuff in the brief uh, in it, I think, you know, in part because of Akhil's really great advice. And lo and behold, that becomes the defining opinion to uphold President Obama, Obama's signature initiative, the Affordable Care Act, in an opinion by Chief Justice Roberts. So I do think that there's ways in which academics, in part because they stand a little bit away from the fray, um, can see stuff that others don't see. Just so our audience can get a little bit more of a sense of the ecosystem, and we're, we won't be probably comprehensive about this, but when you sort of look around and see, look at who does things similar to you. So which academics do you think, you know, is your academic work most like? Which um, Supreme Court litigators is, you know, are sort of, do you see as kind of your, your brethren and sister and your, your, your counterparts, sort of which media people um, are kind of doing things that you think are so much similar to, to uh, you, you or or your your public interest activism. I'm not sure there's anyone quite that does all four of those quite the way you do, but they're really interesting people in each one of those four quadrants: activism, journalism, academic, co constitutional law, and um, and a, you know high level Supreme Court appellate. And, and appellate practice. Who, who do you see as sort of, you know, inhabiting those circles at this point? Just so our, and, yeah. it, and it won't be comprehensive. We're going to probably forget some folks, but just yeah, no, get, I mean, get a I'll, sense. I'll, I'll admit almost everyone, I'm sure. But I would say, like, in each of those uh, areas, I think the people tend to be more strident than I do, um, but, um, but nonetheless very effective at what they do. So, you know, like on the media side, 
I think uh, Joyce Vance and Maya Wiley um, are people who are just are very good at explaining the law to people um, and do a remarkably great job at it. Um, on the litigator academic side, um, Pam Carlin is just a phenomenal advocate and scholar at the same time. Um, and she's, Jonathan Edwards College alum. <laughs> um, uh, you know, uh, in, there are others who I think aren't advocating as much anymore. I mean, unfortunately, the, the legal academy has started to really move away from actually hiring people who know about the law. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so you, you said that very quickly, you know, but it's a it's a big problem. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, so you tend to have fewer now than probably in earlier days, like in the Griswold days. But, you know, Erwin Chemerinsky and Larry Tribe, you know, come to mind. David Strauss has argued a few cases um, as well. Um, but, there, the, you know, it, it is unfortunate to me that um, that law schools aren't offering students as much of of that um, um, but there but there are some um, and then uh, in terms of um, what are the other categories you wanted so uh, journalism activism uh, kind of con law scholars and, uh, and just the, the, the Supreme Court bar in general yeah and then in the Supreme Court bar you know there there are some phenomenal people I mean Paul Clement um, is obviously you know at the top of everyone's list and um, as I say, a dear friend and, and just exquisite. Um, Jeff Fisher at Stanford uh, is is really terrific. Um, and then there, there are a bunch of others um, as well. Um, and one nice thing about our bar is we tend to be very good friends with one another. Um, in part, that might be instrumental because, you know, we're often, you know, referring cases to one another and doing amicus briefs for one another. But in part, it's just, you know, genuinely, these are some very nice people and it's a privilege to be part of the bar. So, so that leads me to two uh, sort of wrap-up questions, if I could. Um, with what you just said about people being collegial um, at the very top level of the Supreme Court bar, I would think part of that would have to come from a recognition that you're going to lose some cases. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, but, you know, you talked about, you know, your first case, which was obviously a huge case, and it was... A lot on the line and, and you won but you haven't won them all um, what you know what was it like to lose I mean was it was it a skill that you needed to learn how to handle that or was it was it just you recognize that this happens I mean I'm a, do a doctor a doctor has to recognize they're gonna yeah. have some adverse results doesn't mean you like it but um, well my mom really raised me this way she always said you know like if you try your hardest and you've given it your all whatever result happens you know that's not in your control and that is a hundred percent how I approach this um, and I will you know be pained um, when we lose a case but if I felt like I've done everything I could you know then I'm okay with it but I would say the most important thing I think your listeners need to understand about Supreme Court advocacy, um, particularly you know, the way we do it um, at my firm, it's not about winning or losing. In fact, I often take cases in which we're 100% sure we're going to lose. The question is, how are we going to lose? Can we steer the Supreme Court into a narrow loss that ultimately does a lot for our client or for if it's a kind of more cause case for the cause. Like just to give you one example, I argued a death penalty case a few years ago in which, you know, I knew from the minute that I looked at the case that the defendants were going to lose the case. 
um, there were two issues in the case. And I remember I went and argued it at the Supreme Court and about 10 minutes in, Justice Otomayor asks me, she says, counsel, if the rest of your argument is going the way the first 10 minutes is, I have one question for you. Which way do you want to lose? Do you want to lose on question one or two is what she was saying. And everyone laughed and thought this was like a horrible dig at me. Um, but she understood exactly what was going on, which is I was steering the court to losing in a narrow way, which would ultimately save these guys' lives, which is uh, what happened. And so, um, you know, never, you know, do I look at things like win loss records, although, you know, mine's pretty good, but I don't look, don't think about it that way. I think about have we done within the realm of what's possible and you know as a Supreme Court advocate the first thing you do is look at the case soberly and say what is the range of possible outcomes then what's the range of likely outcomes now how do we steer it that way and sometimes it's getting the client to understand they're gonna lose but there's a narrow way to lose and a big way to lose and here's why we recommend making the strategic choices we do and ultimately it's their case and certainly I've had clients say, I want you to go for broke, and even though we've advised against it. Um, and other cases, you know, obviously it works out the other way. So, um, but again, it's, you know, what a privilege it is to have those kinds of conversations with clients whose cases are going to the highest court in the land, and you get the opportunity with your legal team to say, here's the argument we're gonna make to the highest court in the land. And then finally, related to that, um, the uh, when again when you took your your first case, that was a, a kind of an elective thing. You chose you chose to do that. Um, now you are at a firm. You have a responsibility to your partners, you know, to the firm, etc. You probably you know you may not have quite the same discretion in terms of what cases you take. Is that right? I mean, sometimes you have to take your clients as you find them. Well, I think that's true in the Solicitor General's office. You know, it's whatever cases are there um, that you have to, you know, you have to defend. And, you know, some of them are hard and emotionally wrenching and the like, but you have a duty to defend them. Um, in the private sector, I wouldn't say that's true. Um, you know, probably all the time I turn down cases for one reason or another. I am a deep believer in the adversarial system, and I am a believer that in general things should be teed up to courts to decide. And I'm also a believer in the fact that as a private lawyer, particularly one with a certain reputation, you can get clients to make policy decisions that they otherwise wouldn't make for the good of society. Um, and I certainly see that as part of my duty whenever I take a case. If I see something that I think is problematic, even if it's not going to matter to the outcome of the case and the litigation, I feel absolutely a duty to talk to the board, to talk to the CEO, to talk to the general counsel, to talk to whomever it is, to try and make sure that that company or individual or whatever does the right thing. So I think that one theme that came across on this podcast uh, earlier was the notion that um, the Supreme Court may trust a particular litigator, um, the president may trust a solicitor general or a deputy solicitor general. And uh, I think as Americans, we're lucky that we can trust Neil Katyal. So thank you for being with us today. And we can trust him to come back because yes. this is just the first of uh, a two-parter. Yes. 
Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm sorry my answers are so long that we have to go to part two. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pleasure.